Shabbos. It's nice to see you all. So we are now winding down our series that we've been going through, through the letters of John. And uh, today we're going to be moving from 1 John that we finished last week into 2 John. And as a reminder, John's three letters were written during a tumultuous time for the followers of Yeshua. The apostle John fled from Jerusalem around the time that the temple was destroyed, where he fled to Ephesus along with Yeshua's mother. It is believed he wrote the gospel and the letters in Ephesus towards the end of his life and where he also died and was buried. He wrote his three brief letters to address conflicting theologies and behavioral concerns that were being taught and to bring a message of hope and encouragement. So if you do have your scriptures with me, you can open up to... Can everybody hear me okay or should I switch to this? All right. Um, so if you have your scriptures with you, you can open up to 2 John. So 2 John is one of the shortest books in the Bible. It's only 13 verses long. And unlike 1 John that we just finished, which is more of a treatise or a, wit or, or a written sermon, 2 and 3 John are true letters written in the characteristic formal style of ancient correspondence. So it begins by telling us immediately who it's from, who it's to, and then at the end, it pulls everything together with a personal conclusion. The purpose of John's second letter is to address the same issue which we've been exploring the last <laughs> five weeks, right? In which he further expands upon the first letter specifically dealing with the problem of itinerant teachers whose teaching John considered to be dangerous and false. Second John basically encapsulates the situation and problems of first John and does not seem to really add anything we don't already know from the previous letter, which then begs the question, why is second John in the Bible if it doesn't really tell us anything new? According to Marianne May Thompson of Fuller Theological Seminary and a teacher of our very own uh, <laughs> uh, Dana, it is possible that 2 John served as a cover letter sent along with 1 John to include personal greetings from the elder to a specific congregation in his care. It is also possible that 1 and 2 John were intended for different audiences. 1 John was circulated in the elder's immediate vicinity while second John was sent to those at a distance whom the elder could contact only by letter or by messenger. In any case, it is safe to say that the two letters illumine each other and are so obviously written with the same situation in view that each may be used to interpret the other. A similar idea is proposed by Craig Keener who writes, second John may function as an official letter the sort that the high priests could send to the Jewish leaders outside of Israel. The length is the same as that of 3 John. Both were probably limited to this length by the single sheet of papyrus on which they were written. In contrast to most New Testament letters, most other ancient letters were of this length. So it's basically saying the reason why it's short is because that was common at the time. Remember, you could only write so much on a papyrus sheet. And so in order for some of the other letters, like Paul's letters, which are really long to have been written, 
that was not normal because it required so many sheets of papyrus in order to do. So he's basically saying the reason why this served uh, maybe communities beyond where uh, John could actually reach was because this is something small that could be sent with a courier. Or, like some people think, it was the cover letter for 1 John. So let's jump right into things. We begin in verse 1, from the elder. It's interesting here that unlike P Paul or Peter or some of the other writers, he, John doesn't tell who he is, right? He just simply refers to himself. He doesn't give any kind of a greeting. Uh, it's not a formal letter in 1 John, so there is no, none of this greeting like he has here in 2nd and 3rd John, but he simply refers to himself as the elder, which has led speculation in modern history of who this, could, who this elder could be. Obviously, the idea of an elder in Hebrew, zaken, refers to somebody of age, right? But the idea of an elder is not just simply somebody of age. And the idea of age is wisdom is supposed to come with age. Not sure what happened to me. No, I'm just kidding. I'm still earning it. Um, but elder is also the idea of somebody who serves as a leader within a, a community or a group of communities. And there are other writers of New Testament books that don't describe themselves by name. For example, Jude just simply calls himself a slave of the Messiah, right? And sometimes some people did this out of humi humility or because their identity was so well known to the audience that they were writing to that it was a little... It was a little too much to also, everybody knew who the letter was from. And that's probably the case with John here. So he simply writes, from the elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who have come to know the truth, because of the truth which remains united with us and will be with us forever. The congregation to which John is writing is designated supposedly metaphorically as the chosen lady and her children. Monique and I were going on and on about this because it seems so unusual to begin a letter, especially when you look at other New Testament letters, to refer to the community as the chosen lady and her children. There are some who speculate that maybe the leader of this particular community was a woman, but the way that the grammar works in uh, Greek that this is always in the plural and it's not in the singular, which would make more sense that if you were speaking to an individual person, that you would use the singular rather than the plural. But the book seems to go back and forth and tend to use the plural more often than the singular. And so, especially when we consider the last verse, the children of your chosen sister send you their greetings, the idea, at least among most scholars, is this is a greeting from one congregation to another. So the chosen lady and her children, and the children are obviously, like we've seen throughout 1 John, is a reference to the members of the community. To Marianne Thompson, who I mentioned earlier, points out that the New Testament elsewhere speaks of the faith community as a woman or bride. And when greetings are sent from the children of the chosen sister, it suggests the greetings sent from one congregation to another, as I mentioned. Dr. David Stern suggests that this may have been a way to disguise who the letter was addressed to in order to avoid scrutiny or perhaps Roman censorship. And then it goes on with this formal greeting that you always see in ancient letters. Grace, mercy, and shalom will be with us from God the Father and from Yeshua the Messiah, the Son and the Father in truth 
and love. So you have this formal greeting, and then it jumps right into the first of one is concerns. And uh, Monique had this interesting perspective when I was reading this out loud uh, one evening. And she said, it sounds like, what did you say? It sounds kind of passive aggressive. Like you should be doing this, but you're not. So I'm going to remind you that you should. I tried to see if any other commentators pointed this out, but it does kind of seem to state the obvious. Why is he saying this if the idea was that he should already be doing it? It's a, you know, perhaps a little nudge that, uh, for all of the things that all of us know that we should be doing that we don't really do. So in verse four through six, he writes, I was very happy when I found some of your children living in truth. It's interesting. He says, I only found some of your children living in truth. <laughs> doesn't say, I was so happy that all of your children were living in truth. Maybe this is why the reminder, right? I was so happy when I found some of your children living in truth, just as the father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I am requesting that we love one another. Not as if this were a new command I am writing you, for it is one which we have had from the beginning. Moreover, love is this that we should live according to his commands. This is the command as you people have heard from the beginning, live by it. This is a th common theme that we kept seeing over and over and over again through 1 John, right? This idea of uh, the way Yeshua is able to encapsulate all of the mitzvot into the 10 and then into the two and then into the one, right? So when Yeshua says that the greatest commandment is Shema Yisrael, right? To, Hear, O Israel, the Lord God is the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your might. And he says, and the second is like it, as we've been talking about the last few weeks, this is an encapsulation of the way to, just as the t Ten Commandments do, it combines our love for God and our love for one another, right? The, the first five of the commandments deal with our relationship to God. The other ones deal with our relationship to one another. So what Yeshua is doing is he's encapsulating all of this by saying, love God, love one another. The rest is commentary. And John then continues this idea. And we see it over and over and over again. And this is why he's always connecting love to what? To observance, right? Commandments. It's kind of like what um, if Ryan's, I think Ryan's now teaching Shabbat school, but I loved what he was kind of alluding to was this idea that these details instruct us how to be holy. In the same way that those blueprints, if there is something that is even slightly off in your measurements, forget about it. You know, you're, either the roof is going to fall in, the wall's going to tip over. Something's not going to be right when you don't have proper instruction. And it's just like, James writes, you ask me about my faith and I'll show you my faith by what I do, that the two have to go hand in hand together. The commandment John mentions here is an old law or is an old command because it was in the Torah in Leviticus 19.18. Although Yeshua's example gave it new importance in the context of 1 and 2 John, loving one another likely means cleaving to the community rather than leaving it like the secessionists do, like the false teachers do. And according to David Stern, for loving one another includes all of the commands, right? It encapsulates all that we're supposed to and the way that we're supposed to treat one another. So then he goes on to kind of his real reason for writing the letter. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, people who do not acknowledge Yeshua the Messiah's coming as a human being. 
Such a person is a deceiver and an anti-Messiah. Watch yourselves so that you won't lose what you have worked for, but will receive your full reward. Everyone who goes ahead and does not remain true to what the Messiah has taught does not have God. Those who remain true in his teaching have both the Father and the Son. If someone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, don't welcome him into your home. Don't even say shalom to him. For the person who says shalom to him shares in his evil deeds. This seems a little heavy, but you have to understand what he's saying. Here is John's primary person, purpose in writing his letter. He wants to address the same issue which he further expanded upon in his first letter, specifically to deal with the problem of the itinerant teachers whose teaching he judges to be false because it denies that Messiah Yeshua has come in the flesh. Just like we've talked about, this is one of the, the huge errors in theology that was creeping in in the early centuries. This idea that the Yeshua was only divine, right? It only appeared that he was human. And there's also the flip side, which would say that he was just human and he's in no way divine, right? And both of these are a theological error. He warns his readers against participating in their evil deeds by accepting their beliefs or aiding their propaganda in any way. Because he writes, for these teachers have gone out into the world, in verse 7, indicating that they are former community members who have left and are now probably trying to win over others to their teaching. In verse 11, he writes, greetings were an essential part. Not, uh, John doesn't write this. Uh, another commentator writes, greetings were an essential part of the social protocol of the time. And the greeting shalom, or peace unto you, right? This is a common greeting all across the Middle East. In Judaism, we say shalom aleichem, right? Shalom, peace be upon you. Uh, Muslims and Arabs say salam, assalamu alaikum, which is the same as shalom aleichem, right? It's the, just a different pronunciation. So there are different ways of greeting people, but it's a formal greeting. It's not just like, hey, what's up, you know? It's a, it's a formal greeting. There's a social protocol in the way that you exchange greetings. And he's saying, these greetings are essential part of social protocol at the time. And the greeting, peace be upon you, shalom aleichem, was intended as a blessing or prayer to impart peace. And when these people are false teachers and destroying the community, you're not supposed to wish peace upon them. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, one who provided for an apostate from the community was regarded as an apostate sympathizer and was expelled from the community as the apostate was. Housing or blessing a false teacher was thus seen as collaborating with them. In one of the first commentaries to the entire New Testament in Hebrew was written uh, in the late 1800s by Rabbi Yechiel Tzvi Lichtenstein, a great Hasidic Rav who became a believer in Yeshua. And commenting on this verse, he writes, some say that verse seven refers to the deceivers who came as brothers, but led people astray with their false teachings. It is said about any other kind of believer for everyone is to be received courteously, even pagans. So he even, he even acknowledges in most cases, we're supposed to be welcoming and respectful to other people. The problem with these false teachers is they're sheep in false clothing. The reason why we're harsh with them is because they're the worst kind of deceiver on, in the sense of the safety of the community, because they're the kinds of people who have wrong intentions, but they look fine. 
They come into the community disguised as brothers or sisters. And yet they're really out to get you to, to win you over into a different kind of teaching. One in which over and over and over again in 1 John, John is saying, this is not the gospel that we gave you. He begin, this is why he appeals. He appeals on his behalf of saying, you cannot trust what these people are saying about Yeshua because we who were there, right? He begins by saying, we who touched him, who felt him, we saw him, that we were the witnesses to these things and you can trust that what we tell you is true. He says this to contrast that with the false teachers who he's saying that what they're teaching is not accurate. So then he concludes his letter. So he's basically saying, love one another, observe the mitzvot. Also, don't be led astray by these people who basically left our community and are now wandering around to the other communities that are part of our, our collection of communities, teaching these things which are false. In fact, don't even associate with them, he says. And then he concludes, although I have much to write to you people, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come and see you and to talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your chosen sister send your greetings. He concludes by, he starts positive, gives this, you know, instruction that is, uh, you know, should be well received. And then he goes into the hard stuff. And then he sandwiches it again with some nice, you know, but, but this again was social protocol, but it's a way to kind of wrap things up very nicely and leave things positively. Although I have also remember just like then, and this is even more true in our world, but then face-to-face -face communication was considered a priority over written communication. So he's basically saying and acknowledging, I would much rather share this in person, but because I'm unable to, I hope to, you know, to do so, but because of this, I have to rely on pen and ink, on papyrus and ink. But he said, I hope to talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. And then he says, the children of your chosen sisters send you their greetings. So this probably means that the, the chosen sister is the community in Ephesus giving these greetings to the, the communities that are spread uh, outside and around Ephesus. This is again in the short little 13 verses is a reminder that our observance should flow out of love for God and for one another. I often encourage people, especially those who are new to Messianic Judaism or are new to observance and they get so excited and they want to just take on all of this stuff. I always encourage people slow down a little bit. Because often the person that you see two weeks later, like totally decked out and, you know, pretending to be all orthodox and stuff, usually a year later doesn't go anywhere. They don't go anymore to a synagogue. They don't go to a church. They, they burn themselves out. In the same way, the person who has a high level of observance but treats people like garbage. It's really important I mean, please don't get me wrong. I believe, observance is an important part and should balance out our faith. But if our observance is not causing us to grow closer to Yeshua, then something's wrong. 
not, the, it's not that the observance is wrong, something's out of balance, right? Because the purpose of these things is to help us grow closer to God. And if that's not happening, then we, something's out of order. It's also a warning to be careful about being led astray. Just as we talked about before with Paul's praise of the Bereans. And as I mentioned before, what I love about that story is he's not criticizing somebody who was hostile to his message, right? Usually we think, oh, you know, you're going to question what I believe because you just don't believe me. The great thing about Acts in Berea, when he praises the people at the synagogue in Berea, it says that they warmly received his message, yet every single day went to the Tanakh to make sure that what he said was true. And what I love about Paul is the humility that he had, and I believe this is the same that we see reflected in John, is he didn't criticize them for it. Well, I'm an apostle and you should believe me. If I told you, it's true. Instead, he says, good for you. That even though you warmly received me, every single day you went to the Tanakh to make sure that what I said is true. The same way should be for us. Whether you're hearing me on a Shabbat, whether you hear something on the radio or on television, even if it sounds good, we have the spiritual responsibility before God and our community to make sure that we're constantly checking scripture to see if what we say is true. Because guess what? I'm not perfect. <laughs> As I mentioned before, I try very, very, very hard to take my responsibility seriously, that when I stand before you, that what I say I have conviction that it's hopefully right. <laughs> and you have the responsibility to not be, just be passive sponges. Yes, we're supposed to sit at the feet of the sages, it says, and drink in their words. But at the same time, what that means is we should be wrestling with it and making sure that we're constantly weighing what is being taught. In my case, I would hopefully trust that you believe that it's with good intention. Even if I end up telling you something that's wrong, at the same time, you always can't trust people's intentions. There are a lot of people who like to use scripture to twist it and manipulate. That's not okay, if you didn't already figure that out by now. And so it's our job to be responsible for our own spiritual lives. I'm not saying we save ourselves. It's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is because we've been saved, right? Because God has redeemed us, we have a responsibility then not only in the way that we conduct our lives and the way that we conduct ourselves with one another, but also what is being brought in here. Garbage in, garbage out, right? So let us be the kind of people that take John's encouragement seriously that we learn to love one another, to love God, and to be careful about what we bring into our lives. Because as Ryan also remind us to, reminded us today, our bodies are a temple. And if this really does belong to God, then there's graffiti that doesn't belong in that temple. There are cobwebs and other things that we've stashed in drawers We've hidden in closets. We've tried to pretend like it's really not there anymore. And what God says, it's time to clear out the temples. 
it's time to let this be a place for my presence to, to dwell. In our Torah portion that says, this morning it said, Build for me a dwelling place so that I may dwell. It doesn't say in it. That's what's so fascinating. It doesn't say build for me a dwelling place so that I can live in it. It says, So that I can live in y'all. <laughs> so that I can live in you. In them, it says, literally. Avinu, our Father, cause us to be temples for your presence to dwell. And for those of us who have allowed our temples to maybe be a little defiled, to maybe be a little run down, to maybe have allowed graffiti to be spray painted on it. Whatever it is, God, help us to clear out our temples and be actively engaged in building a dwelling place for you to dwell. Not only so that you can dwell in us, but through us and through our community so that we can impact the world. Help us, God, to walk in your ways. That we would listen to one of the actual apostles' instructions to us. That's what this really is. He's telling us, don't be deceived. Love one another and love God. These are the essentials. So help us to treat it as essentials also. We pray all of this in the name of Yeshua. Amen. So let's please rise.